0: Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Bless the speaking and the hearing of your word. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, so uh, we've lived here in Minnesota for two years now. We moved here two years ago, uh, pretty similar time frame. And I feel like I've gotten the hang of of most things, although you're all gonna tell me that I've had mild winters, so I don't know anything, but um, I feel like I've gotten the hang of most things, but I still don't know how to speak Minnesotan. So I need your guys' help on this. Um, if I am uh, really excited about something, uh, you've told me something that I strongly approve of, how do I communicate? that to you. That I really am excited about this. What do I say? No Minnesotans here. I can't believe it. Any ideas? Well, I heard somebody actually gave this to me when I was with the youth a few weeks back at Valley Fair. And I was trying to, I don't know what we were talking about, but I, I was talking about how I was handling some situation. And the person told me, that's not the worst idea I've ever heard. So I figured that's high praise. In Minnesotan. All right, maybe I know a little bit more than I'm letting on. Uh, If I'm really opposed to something that you just did or said, like I am angry at you about this, how do I communicate that in Minnesotan? What do I say? You're all thinking it, but none of you are telling me. You're being even more passive than my whole intro is supposed to be a joke about. (laughs) that's different, isn't that right? Isn't that what you say? You say, that's different, which means I strongly disapprove of what you just did or told me. So anyway, I'm learning it. You guys aren't helping me, but anyway, I'm still learning it. I'm learning how to speak Minnesotan, but I didn't realize like 10 years ago, my mother-in-law actually taught me some Minnesotan and she's like her whole life lived in Southern California. So I don't know how she knew this, but we were uh, visiting, and we hopped in her, uh, my wife's brother's car. He was driving us somewhere down the freeway. I don't remember what we were off to do. And as we were driving down the road, uh, my mother-in-law sitting in the back seat, it was nice of her to let me sit up in the front for the leg room, but she's sitting in the back seat, and she says, does this car have a fan? <laughs> now, what, is, <laughs> what was she actually asking for? She wanted the air on. She wanted the air conditioning on. And this became a a total, this has been a running joke. I don't know if I gave her the heads up that I was going to use this story, so she'll be fine with it. But um, it's been a running joke in the family does this car have a fan? Uh, it's kind of a passive question, and sometimes there are those questions that we have in life that are, are passive or kind of round about. I know Minnesotans are kind of infamous for this sort of non-direct type of communication, but it, you know she meant well, uh, and we often do when we, when we do those things. Sometimes, though, our questions are also, uh, we can also have rhetorical questions. Questions, meaning you are looking for a specific answer. And so your question is just leading. Uh, Pastors, we try not to do this all the time. It's so tempting, especially like in Bible studies, to just give you leading questions. That's not helpful, right? Uh, You want to be more open-ended. So you have uh, passive questions. You have rhetorical questions. And then you have the type of questions that Jesus gets today in our scripture reading. And I would call these confrontational questions questions. So the first one, which I will only touch on briefly because I really want to focus our attention today on the second one. But the first one is about paying your taxes or not. And it's a confrontational question. Mark even tells us they're trying to set a trap for Jesus. I mean, we saw this last week when he cleared the temple. They were like, that's it. We're getting rid of this guy. Uh, And he's only made that worse with this little parable Uh, Describing what's going to happen to them, the ones who think that they are in charge. And so they come with this question, uh, and it's interesting because the Herodians and the Pharisees are not friends with each other, but they team up on Jesus. And they ask this question of whether you should pay taxes to Caesar or not. And the, the long and short of this trick is that the Roman Empire is not popular with local people. And so if Jesus says... Yeah, pay your taxes to Caesar, then all of the people he's been ministering to, healing, that have been following him, they're all going to be like, what a hypocrite, you know? I'm not going to support this guy anymore. So he's going to lose favor with people, which they hope. Or if Jesus says, don't pay taxes to Caesar, you know what that lets you do? Bring him up on charges of treason and you can get rid of him. So their question is just a trap. That's all it is. The second question is also a confrontational question from the Sadducees. And you see it in, they're asking about, uh, they're trying to point out that this idea of resurrection is absurd because who's going to be married to whom and how could this possibly work? It reminds me of like, in um, whenever we hang out with youth, they have these kinds of mind-blowing questions for God. Can, is God so powerful that he can microwave a burrito that he can't eat or something like this? I, I don't understand the questions, but it's meant to kind of show that there's some absurdity here with this idea of resurrection. And so I think it's important for us, let's um, take a step back and consider these Sadducees a little bit and what, what they're about. Because we usually talk about the Pharisees a whole lot, and we don't usually talk much about the Sadducees. Now, it's an it's a oversimplification, but what we can say is this. The Pharisees are uh, like your middle-class, educated pastors. Those was like Pat and I, right? In the day, you, you're, they're educated, they have some piety with people. I mean, we're used to Jesus being mad at the Pharisees, but there were, you know, Nicodemus and others were thoughtful people. Many of the people kind of... Followed their word and saw that they were faithful followers of God. Maybe a little strict at times. But uh, that was kind of their position. The Sadducees were your upper class, very established religious leaders. They were a little bit more involved in kind of the temple stuff. The priesthood and those types of things. But they weren't priests. uh, But they would have been in that ruling council, the Sanhedrin that we'll get to at the end of Mark's gospel here. And so they've got some clout right? Um, But they're not as popular with your average folks. And for our purposes today, there are three things that we want to know about the uh, the, the Sadducees, okay? The first, as Mark tells us right at the beginning of that section, is that they do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Now, we confess that every time we say the Apostles' Creed. We're going to do that in a little bit. Today, we believe in the resurrection of the dead. What we're talking about is that at the end of all things, God will physically raise us to new life. No sickness, no aging, no mental incapacity, nothing. We will be made whole and perfect, and, we, and there will be an entirely new creation, and, and Paul goes into this in great detail in 1 Corinthians 15. You can check it out if you want to unpack that on your own. But that, so that's the picture. And the Pharisees believed that, but the Sadducees said, no. There's no such thing as a resurrection of the dead. So notice when they ask Jesus the question about it, it's a confrontation. They already don't believe it, right? They're already closed off to it. Uh, another way of thinking about the Sadducees in this regard is that this life is all that matters. This life is all that matters. You know, I think about how sad that is when this life is all that matters. Especially when life is not going well for us. But when I start to think that way, I remove myself from that position. Like, man, I feel bad for people like, that live like that. And then I realize that practically I do this all the time. You know what, the, the, what I check most often on, this is confession time to you guys. You know what I check most often on my cell phone? Any guesses? It's not my social apps. I'm way above all that, right? I don't do any of that except for the exercise ones that I'm into, but whatever. Um, No, you know what I check all the time? I check the weather, and I check my calendar. And I'm always looking at what is is it going to be like today, and I try to schedule out what my day and what my week is supposed to look like. Do you know what I'm doing? I'm trying to get the most out of my week, and I don't even think about that. I just assume that that's what I should be doing. I get what does it mean to get the most out of a day, or the most out of a trip, or to make memories with each other, to get the most out of life? If not, a default setting in our minds that this life matters most, this life right now that we're experiencing. In a way, I am no different. You and I are no different than the Sadducees. We might think about it a little. Sometimes we get get shocked out of it. But a lot of the time, our lives, just practically speaking, we live as if this life is all that there is. And we, we get this realization that not only is my week that I've planned meticulously, but my whole life, my span of years, is a blip in eternity. Well, that's number one with the Sadducees. They, they are uh, no resurrection people. This life is all that matters. The second thing about the Sadducees that's important for you and I to know is that knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. They were highly educated. You know, this question that they bring to Jesus, I guarantee it's a boilerplate type question. I, get, I know that they've used this on the Pharisees before. And they probably have all kinds of questions and insights and teachings to let you know that they know what is true. In fact, I was doing some research on this. I did not know this beforehand. But did you realize that when the Sadducees and the Pharisees would argue about God and life and theology and all this kind of stuff, that they didn't even accept the same sources of authority? So for when Jesus quotes like the Psalms, the Pharisees hear him say something from the Psalms and they say, yeah, that's God's word. The Sadducees would hear that and say, no, doesn't count. The Sadducees would only accept the first five books of what we know as the Old Testament as God's word. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay, I still remembered them. Don't ask me to name the minor prophets. I can't remember them all. All Right? But they would only take those five. And so if if you said, well, what about this in the prophet Isaiah? doesn't count. And it kind of reminds me of like our own day, you know, who... What, do we, who get, what gets to count for evidence or facts or truth for people? We, we all pick our sources and my knowledge becomes my power, right? My insight over somebody else. And it's funny because I have been completely swimming in this culture because I'm a child of the 80s and 90s. And this was the mantra that was shoved onto us as we grew up. It didn't matter whether it was G.I. Joe, which I wasn't supposed to watch because it was violent, but I watched it anyway. (laughs) Where they would, after every fight, they would say, remember guys, knowing is half the battle. You know, it's like, well, the other half is uh, killing your enemy, I guess. I don't know. Right. But knowing is half the battle. Or if you ever watched any NBC shows, they always had these little public service announcements where they teach you something and then a little star goes across the screen. Does anyone know what I'm talking about here? The more you know. Anyone ever see those? Anyway, I swam in it because I watched a ton of TV as a kid. And so I was inundated with this idea that knowledge is power, just like the Sadducees. Knowledge is power. And now I'm thinking to myself, power for what? Power for what? They never seemed to answer that question when they were telling me that I got to know in order to have power. Power for what purpose? What could it possibly be? And you know what's assumed is power to uh, take your life by your hands, right? To control your own fate. Power to get ahead. Ahead of who? For what? Power to get money. Power to have security in your life. These are just assumed things. They never actually talked about whether that's good or not. It was just what we were told on a regular basis and what we continue to be told. Right? That knowledge is power. And then you start to think, wow, knowledge is not a tool. Right? It's not a tool for Uh, growing it's not a tool to get at the truth it's not a tool a tool to lift up someone else it's a weapon knowledge is power (laughs) why why do we want power to use it right to use it against other people and you say all the time in our world at large we know something you don't know I know something you don't know and we wield it like a weapon against each other we're still talking about the Sadducees right okay So the Sadducees say this life is all there is. The Sadducees say that knowledge is power. And finally, the Sadducees highly value influence and position. So they are the ones that wear the best flowing robes or they have the cool new sneakers or whatever the thing is that you're supposed to have. They've got it. And they, though they would not be fans of the Roman Empire, don't really want to see them go because status quo is working well for them. They don't like Jesus or other types of people kind of overturning the way things are supposed to be. Just leave it as it is because we're in power and we'd like to stay there, right? And so they are, they are challenging Jesus in that regard. And we can do that too. Whatever position we think we have in our lives, we can, we can be there. But on the other end of it, maybe, maybe we fight for influence or for position because we're afraid of, of not having any influence. In other words, how do I know that I matter? How do I know if I have value? Usually the answer that we seek without even thinking about it is that others will tell me. Somebody else will tell me that I matter. Somebody else will tell me that I have value. If I have influence on others. I mean, the preacher is the first one to have to confess, right? I'm up here trying to influence you with my own words. Does that give me value before God? Before other people? What does this do? And so just like, are we still talking about the Sadducees here, you guys? I thought we were, but I feel like I'm talking about myself. I feel like we're talking about our own culture. This is actually a beautiful thing about God's word, by the way. Is that sometimes we think that there's a, a, diff- a difference in culture means that there's this great expanse between me and somebody else. And then we think, okay, these guys are halfway around the world. They're part of this Jewish culture. They're 2,000 years ago. What could I possibly have in common with them? Turns out everything. Turns out Everything. And you think about just even the people in our own community, maybe you you have people, neighbors or someone around you, you think, I don't know what I could have in common with them. God's word would tell you, this is just an aside. You have everything in common with them. Everything in common. We're talking about ourselves here with the Sadducees. Their question to Jesus is cynical and it's closed off. And so is their world. And we'd like to make distinctions that we're somehow different than our culture around us, but we all swim in these waters. And it's so easy for us practically to have the same view about things, to be cynical about stuff in our lives, to be closed off to what God might be doing in our midst. I mean, I think about myself. Do I assume too much about what life is supposed to be? Do I assume too much about other people? When I have my first impression of them, have I already got my presuppositions, just like the Sadducees when they come to Jesus with this question? That I already know what I'm going to get out of this. Do I assume too much with God, with what He is capable of, with what He is doing in my life and in the life of those around me? See, Jesus speaks the truth. He speaks the absolute truth to the Sadducees and to every single one of us. He says, you do not know God's word or his power. You do not know God's word or his power. And when you think about God's word, this is a constant issue for us. We are always expecting less from God than he actually wants to give. We are always more cynical, more closed off. Uh, expecting less resurrection in life than what God actually wants to give. You know, you think of Abraham and Sarah, and it's kind of like, well, I mean, it'd be great if we could have a kid, you know, but that's probably not going to happen. And God blesses all the nations through their offspring. Like, not just Abraham. I mean, remember when God has Abraham go out in the night I need to go out away from city lights so I can actually see these stars. But when, when, Moses, when, when Abraham is called out by God, he says, look at the stars and tell me if you can even count them. Abraham, you're asking for far too little from me. Your world is closed off and God's world is expansive. Moses, he asked God, can we get some freedom from slavery here? We just want to get out from the thumb of, of Egypt. And God gives them a land of promise and an eternal inheritance. Not just you're no longer slaves, but you are sons and daughters of the living God. Our world is so closed off. We ask far too little of God when he rejoices to give us the kingdom, to give us everything in Christ. Jesus lays down his power. He is life. He lays down his power. He gives us his position. All those things that the Sadducees and that you and I kind of clamor for without even realizing it, Jesus says, you're you're asking for far too little. I will give it all to you and more and more. And Jesus does the complete opposite. His questions are completely open questions with us, right? Not closed off, not cynical it's not a closed world for him. It's a resurrection world for him. It's a new creation world for him. And you see this in the types of questions that he asks. So to the disciples, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? He wants them to tell him. Like personally, who do you, no, don't just tell me what's true. Who do you say that I am? And let's talk about this. So, and then he can teach us the truth of who he is. I think about the woman that he meets at a, at a well. This is in John 4, so I'm skipping to another gospel here. But in John 4, Jesus meets this woman at a well, and she's obviously very estranged from a lot of other people in her community. And Jesus' opening question to her is Will you give me a drink? Will you give me a drink? That's not a closed question, that opens a complete dialogue. It creates relationship. It restores her to her community. She becomes a missionary to her village that she was estranged from. From one question like that. Will you give me a drink? Jesus asks many times in the Gospels, and it's the same question for you and for me every day of our lives. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And he means that question. Jesus' world, he is the king of all things, is not cynical and closed off. It is open. It is resurrection. It is new creation. Jesus is the resurrected one. And he is resurrecting you and me. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.